functional aspects of the city are important. We've already heard of some general functions related to the concentration of power and religion. But how does this functional differentiation appear in some other contexts? For example, at the Aztec city of Kalishawaka. Dr. Michael Smith. The city is laid out on the sides and top of a hill, of a small mountain actually, and there's very little settlement down on the plain. But on the sides, some areas are covered with stone terrace walls, and the houses were built on top of the terraces, and other areas don't seem to have terrace walls. We don't know whether that's because they've been destroyed since the occupation period or whether that's the way they were originally. That's one of the things we'll be testing with excavation. We've also found that there's a, an area in the center of the site, not too far from the big pyramids, where there tends to be a lot of fancy decorated pottery, a lot of imported wares, and this may signal an elite or high-status residential area. Well, there seems to be a strong contrast between monumental and other areas. Is this the same at other cities, for example, Maya cities? The houses which we uncover are mainly low platforms filled with earth and rocks and covered with a layer of plaster, and the houses that stood on them are timber-framed with thatched roofs and pole walls, and in fact very similar to the houses that the present-day Maya build. This is Norman Hammond, Professor of Archaeology at Boston University. Now, when you go to the other end of the spectrum of structures, that is, the temples and the palaces, these are often reared up on large platforms. Uh, they're stone wall buildings with stone vaulted roofs, and some of the pyramids are 150, 200 feet in height, with a stone temple on the top, with a great roof comb on top of that, decorated with often a sculptured figure of the dead ruler who is commemorated by the temple and who may well be buried underneath it in a tomb uh, in the bedrock. Palaces are where the Maya rulers lived, and these are networks of enclosed courtyards and galleries often built up over a period of centuries. So the um, so-called central acropolis at Tikal, we know, grew over five centuries from east to west with new courtyards and new rulers' houses added on. Think of it as being a bit like Windsor Castle, just growing over a period of four or five hundred years. The palace at Palenque grew over a period of about 150 years, and we have inscriptions that show us that three or four different kings added bits to it. So it's like palaces in most parts of the old world, not built as a single unit, but accumulating new structures as the functions of the building changed, and old throne rooms would be turned into storerooms, old residential rooms would be used for other purposes. Each new king may well have decided to install his own throne room and to move the focus from that of his predecessor, often his father, as a way of establishing his name and his fame at the beginning of his reign. Let's look for functional differentiation, this time in South Asia at Anuradhapura in Sri Lanka, where recent excavations provide a sequence from a small Iron Age village to a medieval capital in the 11th century AD. Are cities in South Asia similar to cities in other parts of the world? Professor Robin Cunningham, based at the University of Durham. It's always very tempting to go straight to Gordon Child and to look at the ten points of sort of urbanisation. And looking at the site, 
probably in the 4th century BC, we pick up the crucial aims, the aspects of urbanization in terms of we have the presence of a recording system, a recording system which develops into the early Brahmi written system. We have the presence of communal effort in terms of the creation of a fortification wall and rampart around the city. We also have begun to get a good idea of the layout of the town from excavations there that probably in the 4th century we're dealing with uh, rectangular structures, earlier structures which are roundhouses are replaced with rectangular structures. That's when the city's laid out. So we can begin to suggest that it's probably a pretty rigid gridiron fashion that's put down. At that time, we're also dealing with the creation of very large religious monuments outside the city. And at the same time, this seems to be when the very large irrigation works are built. And that's crucial for supporting a large agglomeration of population in this area, because this is known as the dry zone of Sri Lanka. So in the 4th century, we begin to get almost an explosion of population. And part of that, we believe, is actually due to the creation of hydraulic system. As we know, cities extend their reach into a surrounding territory and are usually the largest settlement in a hierarchical network ranging from hamlets to villages to towns and cities. Was this also the case in Sri Lanka? One of the elements of received wisdom is that within South Asia, the cities that emerge are all centralised. And certainly this is based on literary evidence from the Arthasastra, which is dated to about the 3rd century BC. And that suggests that actually you have a five-tier hierarchy, you have a, an imperial centre, and then below that you have regional centres, local centres, and then that works all its way down into villages. And so the state is actually quite hierarchical, Taxes are brought up and down through the system, laws are presented down, and that that is the way the landscape of one of these kingdoms works. And we began to think of this as being more relevant to sort of modern communities as well, in that when you look in the developing world, the creation of cities, of urbanisation, has a huge impact on rural communities. There's a brain drain, there's a drain of resources. You get these huge primate cities, which basically suck resources and skills out from the hinterland. Now, one of the problems that we have is how on earth do you actually manage to create a surplus? <laughs> to support all the specialists, all the monks, right in the centre, all the scribes, they need to be supported. How do you generate the agricultural surplus for this and how do you channel it? We don't have towns, but what we have are monastic establishments, Buddhist establishments, which actually are serving these very small, very mobile agriculturalists. And the monasteries are permanent. They are centres of literacy, of course. They're centres of education because they're training not just monks but also villagers. And also they're centres for redistribution. So this is a new dimension, something different from the rest of the world. Is it possible to provide a social interpretation of this settlement pattern? Yes. I mean, it, one of the big questions is how you begin to mobilise people. And to some extent, one of the buzzwords that's coming in is heterarchy. The concept is that you have multiple hierarchies. And so, in a way, yes, you can look at the monasteries in terms of purely 
an economic role, but also they play much more of a centralising role because those monasteries are all linked to mother monasteries in Anuradhapura itself. So in the absence of a centralised administrative structure, you actually have a religious structure which is to all intents and purposes also a social structure because the majority of the population will be integrated within that.